Well, here we are. We are back. I bet you've been missing us as well. It's the Archaeology News, and I am, of course, your host, David Connolly. This news is brought to you, as ever, in partnership between the Stone Pages website, the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources website, and the fabulous Past Horizons website. All the stories have been collected from various sources, and to view the details in each story, including that all-important source, you'll have to go along to the Stone Pages website at news.stonepages.com. Well, to make up for our last one, we actually have a bumper crop for you this time. So I hope you're sitting comfortably, you've made your coffee or your tea, and you have a nice cake uh, to hand. If not, I would uh, pause this uh, just now and go and make yourself one. Made yourself a nice cup of tea? Right, well, let's get started. First story is all about an ancient Cornish monument which is threatened by modern cattle. Then we head off to Greece where we uh, report on Neanderthal bones found in a cave there. Then the snowy landscapes of Wales. Well, it's not all been bad, the weather, because it's highlighted some amazing ancient remains from the air. The Bronze Age collection going on display, and believe it or not, ancient artefacts can be lost in plain sight. There's a rather interesting discussion about the afterlife of early Neolithic houses in Poland that was gathered from the World Archaeology Conference uh, sessions. Then we head up to Sweden, where we unearth a bit of ancient Sweden. Holy Land farming began 5,000 years earlier than previously thought, and there's disputed finds. Yeah, South America. Did man really get there 22,000 years or earlier ago? Well, you'll hear some of the stories behind that. Then migration to the Marianas. It could be the longest ocean crossing in history. Or should I say prehistory. That's in the Pacific. We have Stone Age skeletons unearthed in the Sahara. And stone ships in the Baltic. Where they built by a special maritime group. Skulls of early humans are carrying signs of inbreeding. Be surprising, I would say. And a quarry dig in Berkshire in England unearths an amazing Neolithic settlement. We finish off with donkeys. Yes, donkeys acting as Bronze Age status symbols. I hate to say it, but I'm going to have to do the joke. Nice ass. Right, well, first story, if you remember, it was about the Cornish monument threatened by cattle. Well, campaigners have warned Men and Tall, one of Cornwall's most famous archaeological landmarks, is being threatened by grazing cattle permitted by the government environment watchdog. The Bronze Age stone monument stood near Morva for up to four and a half thousand years, listed as a scheduled monument with English heritage. But campaigners fear it is now being damaged by cattle introduced onto the heathland under the natural England England Agri-Environmental Scheme. Ian McNeil, cook of Save Penwith Moors Action Group, said that on one of his recent walks, uh, he noticed cattle hair on a stone with hoof prints in the churned-up ground surrounding all three stones. He's got photographic proof of that. It's obvious that the cattle have been using the stones as a convenient rubbing post. He said that several stones of the Bronze Age Tregseal Circle, some three miles away, had been destabilised in a similar way when cattle were introduced in 2009. Mr McNeil Cook added that it was obvious that the experience of Tregseal Circle is being repeated at Menantol and there's only a matter of time before damage is caused to the most famous and arguably most frequently ancient visited, sorry, ancient site in Land's End. 
A spokesman for English Heritage said that the stones were actually set in concrete in the 1940s and reset in concrete in 1993 in response to concerns of soil erosion around the stones caused by visitor pressure. He added, We do not, however, expect cattle activity to cause any significant damage to the stones or its settings, but we will continue to monitor the site. A Natural England spokesman said we are aware of recent claims that the presence of grazing cattle is damaging the standing stones. We're working with English Heritage to look at the claims and to ascertain whether or not we need to review the grazing management for the area. I would say actually setting the standing stones in concrete should really have settled the matter. Now, of course, that's a personal point of view and can not be used in a court of law. We're going to head off to Greece, where Neanderthal bones of children and adults discovered in a cave there hint that the area may have been a key crossroads for ancient humans. The remains suggest that Neanderthals and humans may have at least had the potential to interact or cross paths at this location. Greece lies directly on the most likely route of dispersal of early humans and early hominins into Europe from Africa via the Near East. So says paleoanthropologist Katrina Harvati at the University of Tübingen in Germany. It also lies at the heart of one of the three Mediterranean peninsula of Europe, which acted as a refugia for plants and animal species, including human populations during glacial times. That is, areas where species and populations were able to survive during the worst climatic deteriorations further to the north. Harvati and colleagues from Greece and France analysed remains from the site known as Kalamakia, a cave stretching about 20 metres into limestone cliffs on the western coast of the Mani Peninsula of mainland Greece. Excavations at the cave over the course of 13 years showed deposits of the cave date back to about 39,000 to 100,000 years ago into the Middle Paleolithic period. In the cave, they found tools such as scrapers made of flint, quartz and seashells. The stone tools were all created using a typical Neanderthal form. Now, the scientists reveal they discovered 14 specimens of humans, both child and adult, in the cave, including teeth, small fragments of skulls, vertebra, leg, foot bones with bite and gnaw marks on them. The teeth strongly appeared to be Neanderthal, and judging by marks on the teeth, the ancient people apparently had a diet that was rich in meat and diverse plants. The findings suggest the fossil record from Greece potentially holds answers about the earliest dispersal of modern humans and earlier hominins into Europe, about possible late survival of Neanderthals and about one of the first instances where the two might have had the opportunity to interact. I think this is going to be one of these uh, stories that runs and runs. Did humans and Neanderthals meet? One day, hopefully, we will have the answer. Now to cold and snowy Wales, where archaeologists have discovered ancient remains after they were brought back to life, so to speak, by the snow covering of the uh, landscape in Wales. Settlements dating back 4,000 years were only found because just the right amount of snow fell on the countryside. Experts were flying over the landscape in light aircraft when they spotted a series of ancient remains. A combination of the snow and the low sun in the sky at the time of year provided ideal conditions to plot the sites for the first time. 
Archaeologist Toby Driver explained how snow provides perfect conditions for aerial reconnaissance. Snow, you see, evens out the colours of the landscape, allowing complex earthwork monuments to be seen clearly and very precisely. Aerial archaeologists on board the four-seater Cessna identified up to 40 ancient earthworks hidden beneath centuries of growth in mid- and south Wales. They included a 20-metre-wide burial mound on common land near Bridgend and a moated site at Langors Lake in the Brecons. The new discoveries were recorded by experts from the Aberystwyth-based Royal Commission on the Ancient and Historical Monuments of Wales. The Royal Commission has been using aerial reconnaissance to identify ancient sites for the last 25 years, but the recent Arctic conditions, which have seen snow lying in the Welsh hills for weeks, has given the team a new way of unlocking the mysteries that cannot be seen from the ground. Well, so far, over 5,000 new archaeological sites have been discovered across Wales in 25 years of flying. I suppose now you move on to the new concepts of LIDAR, but in a way you'll never really beat a human flying over the land and, well, basically looking. Now, this collection of a remarkable amateur archaeologist, the late William Lamplow, has gone on public display close to the area where they were first discovered in Pickering, Yorkshire. I remember hearing about this man when I was but a young archaeologist. It's amazing how that's brought back memories itself. The collection dates back to... 2000 BCE and has over 40 Bronze Age items included. At the time the collection was started, it was feared that the expansion of forestry following the end of World War II could lead to the destruction of the sites and artefacts. So William Lamplow, accompanied by a colleague called John Lidster and William's son David, set out to salvage what they could. Natalie McCall, a curator of the nearby Yorkshire Museum in New York, is quoted as saying they are quite advanced than for what they did at the time, for amateurs of course, and they recorded everything. David, who gave us the collection, was William's son, and he was about eight or ten when he would go out with them. They would cycle out on their bikes and set up camp and then record items, bring them back on a cart attached to the back of their bike. This is just fabulous. They should be making a feel-good film about this one. The exhibition is being displayed at the Dalby Forest Visitor Centre, of which Miss McCall is further quoted as saying, Since being donated, we have been carefully cataloguing, photographing and researching more about the artefacts. Dalby is the perfect place to show them, as they were very keen to link objects back to the landscape in which they were found. Simple objects can tell us actually quite a lot about the customs of people from a distant part of history. But they're very much now part of our cultural fabric. I think that's a a lovely story. Well, talking about artefacts, occasionally a rare artefact can actually be hidden in plain sight without its significance being realised. This is indeed the case with a simple antler horn belonging to the Natural History Museum in London. The antler fragment first uncovered at Nechers in France somewhere between 1830 and 1848 was found by a village priest. It was then promptly purchased by the British Museum as part of a wider collecting policy. In 1881, the Natural History Museum separated from the British Museum um, and took up its current residence at South Kensington. Later that year, the antler was briefly put on display before being consigned to a storeroom. The next record of its appearance was in 1989 when it was re-catalogued and again returned to the storeroom. 
It was only during 2010, during an audit carried out by the Museum of All Its Bone and Antler Fossils, that its true significance began to emerge. It's probably to the benefit of the artefact that it actually took so long to discover, as the research team were able to then bring modern, non-destructive techniques to bear. The team used micro-CT scanners and 3D microscopy to reveal not only the age, which is approximately 12,000 BCE, but also minute details of how this amazing antler had been carved. Yes, carved, right down to individual scratch marks. The lead author of the study, Dr Silvio Bello, is quoted as saying, the use of micro three-dimensional technologies allows for a far more objective evaluation of the characteristics of the engraving, whilst facilitating the quantification rather than just a mere description of the technical procedure that was adopted. Archaeological digital data has a potential to enable the long-term conservation of an archaeological record and to share the data for both cultural, educational and professional purposes. Yep, they found a 12,000, well, in fact, 14,000 year old carving on the antler. Lovely. Now, uh, a very interesting article that appears in Past Horizons uh, online magazine as an article. It's all about the afterlife of early Neolithic houses. The transition to farming on the Polish lowland, which is part of the North European plain, was a very complex procedure which lasted over a millennium. Settled by the first wave of Neolithic farmers belonging to the linear band uh, Karamik culture, the LBK, which was a culture that basically stretched across Europe from the Paris Basin to the Ukraine and Moldavia, lasting around 600 years, from 5,500 to 4,900 BCE. They're famous for their distinctive longhouses as well, an astonishingly uniform element of the culture throughout the vast territory. In the region of Kuyavia, where many rescue excavations were conducted in recent years, examples of an extremely long afterlife of these LBK houses can be traced. Joanna Pizel explained the strange afterlife in a recent article. The LBK longhouse is a rectangular post-built dwelling with a pitched roof resting on three rows of posts along its long axis. Their length varies from 12 to more than 40 metres in length, though the average is around 20 metres. Widths range from 5 to 8 metres. Too big and in fact too elaborate to represent a purely functional living space, they were built to make an impression and can be described basically as monumental. In the east, houses are aligned north to south with only slight deviation. It's currently assumed that a single family of only about 5 to 10 persons occupied the building, abandoning it after 20 to 30 years, or should I say a single generation of use. Each generation built its own new house, leaving the old one while still structurally sound. Very few houses within settlements overlie each other, so it's argued that older houses were not demolished, but rather left to decay, the houses of the ancestors. After some time, a settlement consisted of houses of the living, and of course these houses of the ancestors, and remembrance could last even longer than the occupation of the site itself. The most astonishing example of this seeming remembrance relationship comes from an LBK longhouse dated to around 5300 BCE, superimposed by a typical Bresk-Kulawiski culture trapezoidal house 
from a thousand years later. The later house follows the axis of the former so precisely that we can only conclude, <coughs> pardon me, their relationship was intentional and not accidental, nor is it the only site which displays this practice. These commemoration practices demonstrate how long these abandoned buildings of the first farmers could have been visible in the landscape of prehistoric Europe and what this must have meant to those that came after. With over 25,000 Iron Age graveyards and burial mounds, 1,140 megalithic structures of all sizes and 2,500 large runestones, Sweden is an archaeologist's paradise. Dr. Martin Rundqvist studies the province of Ostergotland and he says mainly because little has been done about first millennium CE elite culture sites there. Ostergotland, he says, has probably always been a political hotspot, a populous and wealthy area because it's so rich in natural resources. It also has a rich archaeological record starting in the Scandinavian Mesolithic around about 9,300 to 4,000 BCE. Runqvist's book, The Mead Halls of of the Eastern Gates, Elite Settlements and Political Geography, AD 375 to 10,000 in Ostergotland, Sweden, snappy title there, reveals that the province, the eastern heartland of the Gates, has historically been one of Scandinavia's breadbaskets, a place of great agricultural wealth. The Mead Hall was an unusually grand longhouse with a large room at its centre containing a big fireplace and a high seat. Various imported luxury items are usually found there. It was the main type of high-status residence in mid-to-late first millennium CE Scandinavia. The first two-thirds of the Beowulf poem uh, is all about the importance of such a hall to 6th century Danish king and how distressed he is when ogres keep him from using it. The hall is where the leaders perform their political, military, religious and social roles. There's also where raids are planned, booty is divided and dynastic marriages are sealed. It's where scalds sing the praises of the petty kings and where high-born ladies incite political violence or less frequently plead for peace. Sounds very exciting to me. Finds made by his metal detector team and those he has studied in museum collections show that Ostergotland's jewellery makers were well-educated in the complex pan-Scandinavian animal art and other designs of the era. Yet also cultivated a regional repertoire not found elsewhere. Some are so distinctive that connoisseurs would have been able to peg the owners as Ostergotland folk on sight. Dr. Rundqvist is also author of the popular Aardvark archaeology blog and is well worth popping along and having a look at what he writes. Now let's head across to warmer climes into the Levant. For thousands of years, different groups of people have been living in the Negev desert, building walls and cities that survive to this day. The current thinking is that they raised animals and didn't practice agriculture before about the first century. But Hendrik Bruns, a landscape archaeologist at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel, says that his research suggests people in the Negev highlands practiced agriculture as long ago as 5000 BCE. Bruns' as yet unpublished findings come from dating of bones and organic materials in various layers of an ancient field in southern Israel. He found evidence of past cultivation, including animal manure and charred organic material, likely burnt kitchen scraps, both of which have been used as fertiliser around the world for millennia. 
He found three distinct layers in the earth corresponding to three different periods of activity, indicating that the field had been cultivated with long gaps in between. The first dated from around 5000 BCE to 4500 BCE, followed by another from 1600 to 950 BCE, with a final layer between 650 to 950 CE. The first group that farmed here around 7,000 years ago has currently no known name, he said, but developed flint tools that have been found throughout the region. The second period from 1600 corresponds to the time in which the Jews made their way out of Egypt to modern-day Israel, well, according to Exodus and other books of the Bible. Bruden says that the site south of Beersheba is likely to have been south and east of where historians place the Israelites during the time period but could possibly have been home to tribes associated with the Amalekites, a group living in the area that at various times was hostile to the Israelites as they were hostile to them. According to Bruins, these desert peoples used walls and ditches to collect rainwater during the area's infrequent rainfalls. Later inhabitants of the area, known as the Nabataeans, were skilled at collecting and conserving rainwater, allowing them to establish and run a thriving trade route through the area before the arrival of the Romans. The third layer corresponds to the late Byzantine early Islamic period, when people were known to practice agriculture in the area. Graham Barker, a researcher of the University of Cambridge, says that if the study does prove that agriculture had been practised in the area since 5000 BCE, it would be a finding of great importance. I always like uh, a finding of great importance. I must try and do that one day. Now, to a rather interesting story, it's uh, actually even started uh, attempting to write it myself, but uh, got myself tied in knots. It's well worth actually looking at this in a lot more detail. So um, after you've finished here, I suggest you go and research a little bit more about it. It really is interesting stuff. Counter-arguments, etc. Stone tools that have been unearthed at a Brazilian rock shelter may date from at least 22,000 years ago, adding to evidence from other nearby sites challenging the views of Clovis people being the first Americans 13,000 years ago. This new research comes from a team led by geochronologist Christina Lahave and the of the University of Bordeaux and uh, the archaeologist Eric Boida of the University of Paris. Among other South American locations proposed as pre-Clovis human settlements, the most controversial is Brazil's Pedra Furada rock shelter. There, archaeologists unearthed burnt wood and sharp-edged stones dating to more than 50,000 years ago. Pedra Furada's excavators regarded the finds as evidence of ancient human hearths and stone tools. However, critics say the Brazilian discoveries could have resulted, quite clearly, from natural fires and a rock slide. The new discovery at Toca del Terra Pied, a rock shelter in the same national park as Pedra Furada, it has also drawn out the sceptics. And that's the sort of thing I would do as well. Dating hinges on calculations on how long ago objects were buried by soil, which varies greatly depending upon environmental conditions, including fluctuations in soil moisture. However, archaeologist Tom De La Haye of Vanderbilt University in Nashville has seen some of the Toca del Terra finds and regards them as human-made implements. 
similar tools have been unearthed at sites in Chile and Peru, Delahaye says. His team previously estimated that people settled Chile's Monteverde Valley by 14,000 years ago and possibly as long ago as 33,000 years ago. An absence of burned wood or any other find suitable for radiocarbon dating at Toca del Terra Pierre is a problem because that is the standard method of dating sites up to 40,000 years. But if people reached South America by 20,000 years ago, this is the type of archaeological record that you could expect ephemeral, lightly scattered material in local shelters. La Hea and Boeda's team excavated 113 supposed stone artefacts consisting of tools and tool debris in five soil layers, estimating that the last exposure of soil to sunlight ranged from 4,000 years ago at the top to 22,000 years ago in the lower layer. Lahea says that uh, 15 human-altered stones from the basal two soil layers must be older than 22,000 years. The researchers plan to calculate when these artefacts might have last been buried. And you can see where the problems lie. It's a case of it not saying that they don't exist, but I really think there's a little bit more work has to be done before making any solid claims. It also interests me how the only people that seem to be finding these uh, artefacts are the ones that are... Uh, claiming that uh, there were humans there 22,000 years ago or earlier. I think, however, again, it's my personal opinion, that there's a lot to be looked at and still found in the Americas. And it's stories like the next one, really, that uh, makes you think about what would be possible. You don't have to come on through the Bering Straits. Of course, there is a sea route Sea routes, I hear you say, but that's an awful long way. Well, it has been done before. The establishment of human settlements in the Marianas three and a half thousand years ago required long distance migration and may have involved the longest ocean crossing in human history of that time. Dr. Michael T. Carson and Dr. Hyaso Chung Hung from Australian National University in Canberra, and I do apologise for really badly mangling your name there. Continue to make progress on Tinian Island, north of the House of the Taga site, examining what may be the earliest human habitations in the region. Carson says that previously, archaeologists concluded that the first remote island settlements occurred in Melanesia and Polynesia about 3,000 to 2,800 years ago. Now they've found solid evidence of a significantly earlier settlement in the Marianas. Plus, it required an even longer distance of migration across the ocean, more than 2,000 kilometres from the nearest inhabited area. The area where Carson and Hung are currently working is where, in the 1950s, Father Paletti uncovered finely decorated pottery, the earliest pottery of the Marianas. Continuing the excavation, they are uncovering the floor plan of an ancient house and living area composed of cobbles and boulders arranged as paving. Pottery, shell and stone tools, shell ornaments and discarded food remains are all being uncovered. Other sites in Tinian, Saipan and Guam all confirm earlier dating with similar intriguing early artefacts including a distinctive red slip pottery with finely made decorations. 
Carson says that based on what we know so far in the region, in the different regions, we can trace a pottery trail from the island Southeast Asia right the way into the Pacific. Decorated pottery of both the Philippines and the Marianas contain many of the same motifs, and the style appeared in the Philippines at least 3,800 years ago. A more elaborate form of the same core design is found in Lapita pottery of the Bismarck Archipelago, which is east of New Guinea. This is around about 3,400 to 3,300 years ago. And then it continues to be found 3,000 to 2,800 years ago elsewhere in island Melanesia. These are just the beginnings of the ability to learn about the connections. The archaeologists are rethinking much of what's previously been thought about the first people to inhabit the remote Pacific islands. It just goes to show what humans are capable of and feats of amazing early navigation. Archaeologists have uncovered 20 Stone Age skeletons in and around a rock shelter in Libya's Sahara Desert. The skeletons date to between 8,000 to 4,200 years ago. The team concluded that the skeletons were buried over the course of four millennia, uh, with most of the remains in the rock shelter buried between 7,300 and 5,600 years ago. The site, called Wadi Tarakori, lies very close to the main road from Libya to Niger. From about 8,000 to 6,000 years ago, the region was filled with scrubby vegetation and seasonal green patches. Stunning rock art depicts ancient herding animals, such as cows. About 15 women and children were buried in the rock shelter. But starting about 4,500 years ago, when the region had become more arid, five men and juveniles were buried under giant heaps of stones outside the shelter. Rock art also confirms climate change as the cave paintings begin to depict goats, which need much less water to graze. University of Cambridge archaeologist Mary Ann Tafuri and her colleague Savino Deleria began excavating the site between 2003 and 2006. At the same time, archaeologists uncovered huts, animal bones and pots with traces of the earliest fermented dairy products in Africa. The region is a whole, is full of hundreds of sites yet to be excavated. The area, of course, is an untapped treasure. That's if we can ever get back into it, of course. Now, back up to the Baltic. In the middle of the Bronze Age, around 1000 BCE, the amount of metal objects increased dramatically in the Baltic Sea region. Around the same time, a new type of stone monument, arranged in the form of ships, started to appear along the coasts. New research from the University of Gothenburg shows that the stone ships were built by a maritime group. These groups were part of a network that extended across large parts of northern Europe and the network was maintained because of the strong dependence on the metal bronze. Archaeologists have long assumed that bronze was imported to Scandinavia from the south and recent analysis has been able to confirm this notion. The distribution of bronze artefacts has been discussed frequently with most analysis focusing on the links in the network. The people behind these networks, however, are only rarely addressed, not to mention their meeting places. One reason why the meeting places of the Bronze Age are not discussed very often is that we haven't been able to find them at all. Well, this is according to the author of the thesis, Joachim Velhin, of the University of Gothenburg in Gotland in uh, Sweden. 
In his thesis, uh, Verlin uh, has analysed the archaeological material from the Bronze Age stone ships and their placement in the landscape. The stone ships can be found across the entire Baltic region and especially on larger islands, with a significant cluster on the Swedish island of Gotland. The ships have long been thought to have served as graves for one of several individuals and have, for this reason, often been viewed as death ships intended to take the deceased to the afterlife. His study shows a different picture. It seems like the whole body was typically not buried in the ship, and some ships don't even have any graves within them at all. Instead, they sometimes show remains of other types of activities. So with the absence of death, the traces of the survivors tend to appear. One of Valen's conclusions is that the stone ships and activities that took place there point to people who were strongly focused on maritime practice. Details of the ships even indicate they were built to represent real ones. Valen says the stone ships give clues about stone ship, sorry, not stone ship building, but ship building itself, and therefore about the ships they sailed on the Baltic during the Bronze Age. If you go along to, of course, Past Horizons, you will find a full article on this as well. Now, skulls showing signs of inbreeding in China, buried for 100,000 years at the Zhuzhaijiao in northern China. The recovered skull fragments of an early human exhibit a now rare congenital deformation that indicates inbreeding might well have been common amongst our ancestors. This is according to new research from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and Washington University in St. Louis. The skull, known as Zhou Zheyao 11, has unusual perforations to the top of the brain case. And if you understand this next bit, then do please uh, get in touch with me. It has an enlarged parietal foramen, EPF, or hole in the skull, that's consistent with modern humans being diagnosed with a rare genetic mutation on the gene ALX4 on the chromosome 11 of the MX2 of chromosome 5. Quite. What this means is that specific genetic mutations interfere with bone formation and prevent the closure of small holes at the back of the prenatal brain case, a process that is normally completed within the first five months of fetal development. It occurs in about one out of every 25,000 human births. Although the genetic abnormality is sometimes associated with cognitive defects, the older age of the Zhao Zheyao 11 suggests that any such deficits in this individual were minor. Traces of genetic abnormalities, such as EPF, are seen unusually often in skulls of plasticine humans, from early Homo erectus to the end of the Paleolithic. The probability of finding one of these abnormalities in the small available human fossil record is actually very low and the cumulative probability of finding so many is exceedingly small. This is according to one of the co-authors Eric Trinkhaus. The presence of the Yao and other Pleistocene human abnormalities suggest unusual population dynamics, most likely from high levels of inbreeding and local population instability. It's therefore provides a background for understanding population and cultural dynamics through much of human evolution. Four Neolithic houses found in a Berkshire quarry are thought to make up one of the oldest permanent settlements ever found in England. Archaeologists unearthed the 5,700-year-old foundations at Kingsmead Quarry near Windsor. Researchers said it was one of the first 
time, more than one house from this period had been found at a single site. Dr Alistair Barclay of Wessex Archaeology, which has been excavating on the site for 10 years, said that unfortunately only the ground plans have survived of any of the timbers, which would have rotted away long ago. However, they have a very good idea of what these structures may have looked like from the many house finds in Ireland and from experimental work reconstructing prehistoric buildings. Dr Barclay said excavations were still ongoing and there could be more houses within the settlement that have yet to be discovered. All four houses were rectangular in shape, with the largest being 15 metres by 7 metres and situated very close to the River Colne. Two were constructed out of upright oak planks set into foundation trenches, while the others were built using wooden posts. Pottery, flint tools, arrowheads, rubbing stones for grinding corn and charred food remains, including cereals, were recovered from the buildings, indicating the inhabitants were, yes, wait for it, farmers. Radiocarbon dates results, uh, sorry, radiocarbon results from one of the houses show that it dated to between 3800 and 3640 BCE. Further tests are being carried out. And finally, yes, you have made it nearly to the end. It's a donkey story. Donkeys have been thought of for a long time now as beasts of burden, sturdy and simple, a bit like myself. A recent discovery in Israel, however, may put an end to that myth. The discovery occurred near Gaza in the remains of a Middle Bronze Age city known as Tel Haror. Various signs led the team of archaeologists from the University of Haifa to believe that this is no ordinary donkey burial. Yes, I said it, donkey burial. To start with, the remains were found in the courtyard of a temple and the donkey had a copper bridle bit and saddlebags. Examination of the bones revealed that there were no butchery marks on it whatsoever, which probably means the animal formed part of a sacrifice in a ritual burial. The presence of a bridle bit would not in itself appear out of the ordinary if it were not the fact that the donkey's teeth showed no signs of wear, which would have been evidence if the donkey had actually been using the bit for any extended period of time. The find dates from approximately 1700 to 1550 BCE, but it is not the only sacrificial donkey find of significance. Ancient Egyptians also sacrificed donkeys at burial of one of its pharaohs around 3000 BCE. So it's not all good news, basically, if you were a donkey. You may be a status symbol, but you're going to end up sacrificed. Well, if you enjoyed that, how can you not enjoy Past Horizons? There's so much to offer there. Pasthorizons.com, where you're going to get news, videos, opportunities to work around the world, and, of course, the fabulous tool store. Can I remind people about the new and evolving Badger? Yes, British Archaeological Jobs Resource is back and looking wonderful, if I say so myself. And more can always be found at Stone Pages. Yes, Stone Pages, news.stonepages.com. Thanks very much for listening to us again this week, and we hope you'll return when you've recovered for the next exciting episode. Mm-hmm.